welcome to Women in Jazz, the new podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of female jazz musicians. I'm your host, Irani Nejbetsky, and my plan had been that each month I'd sit down with a different female jazz musician to discuss what got her into jazz, her experience developing as a performer, and what life is like as a professional jazz musician today. Unfortunately, the current COVID-19 pandemic has put a bit of a stall on production. Originally, I had hoped to do all my interviews in person, since it gives me a chance to get a real sense of my guest and to spend a bit more time with them outside the interview. However, I have come to accept that in the current circumstances, if I want to keep the podcast going, Women in Jazz needs to move wholly online. Besides, one of the benefits of doing interviews online for a while is that I can try to bring you an even more diverse lineup of musicians from around the world. In the coming months, I have interviews with some wonderful women from the US, although this month, my guest is a little bit more local. That said, before we get into the interview, in the current socio-political climate, I would like to very clearly state this podcast support for the Black Lives Matter movement, both in the US and internationally. Jazz is an art form born of Black American artists and is inextricably linked to the Black experience. Those of us who participate in jazz communities, as musicians, dancers, or even simply as fans and consumers, have a duty to acknowledge and to educate ourselves of jazz's history. And in so doing, it is not enough to shrug and say, well, their experience was horrible, but that's the past. Or perhaps I'm not American, so this isn't my problem. Systemic oppression and institutionalized racism are alive and well today around the world. And the countries that many of us live in were built on the backs of slavery and the continued exploitation of people of color. If we acknowledge that and we know that it's wrong, I believe we have a duty to try to change it. We must do the work by educating ourselves, by letting go of our own ego and discomfort and listening when black folks share their experiences. It is not enough to be not racist. We must be actively anti-racist. To quote author and journalist Ijema Oluo, you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be an anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it including in yourself. If you feel overwhelmed thinking about where to start, just put one foot in front of the other, because things need to start changing now. With that said, I'd like to introduce you to our guest for episode five, the wonderfully talented Tutu Puwane. Although currently based in Antwerp in Belgium, Tutu was born in Atridgeville, Pretoria in South Africa and grew up in the township of Mamelodi in Pretoria, She started playing music professionally in 1997 in Johannesburg and soon began studying jazz vocals at the University of Cape Town. Although Tutu was becoming well-recognised for her talents in South Africa, in 2002 she decided to take an opportunity studying at the Royal Conservatory of The Hague in the Netherlands before relocating to Antwerp. Tutu has since played concerts all over the world, including countries like Italy, the United States, Germany, the Netherlands, France, and of course Belgium and her native South Africa. She released her successful debut album Song in 2007, which was followed by Quiet Now in 2009. Tutu leads her own quartet and is a guest vocalist for the Brussels Jazz Orchestra, who I love by the way, with which she released the album Mama Africa in honour of the great Miriam Makeba. Tutu and I connected online in mid-July to discuss her experience growing up in South Africa, where apartheid ended when Tutu was still in school, what inspired her as a young musician, what the jazz music scene is like in Belgium and how it compares to other countries, and her current work, 
including writing her own compositions based on the poetry of South African artist Lebochang Mashile. One more note before the interview. Unfortunately, since we were only able to record our conversation via Zoom, there are issues with the audio here and there throughout the episode. They're only small when they happen, but you may sometimes need to just use your problem-solving skills to fill in a missing word here and there. But hey, since we're all so used to being on Zoom these days, I'm sure you can figure it out. So, here's my chat with Tutu. So, thank you so much for joining me today to have this uh, have this discussion. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. You're welcome. I really just wanted to start with your background and, and where you grew up, what your sort of earliest experiences of music were. I was born in 1979 in a township called Attridgeville in the east side of Pretoria in South Africa. Oh, sorry, the west side. <laughs> My husband is listening to me on the other end. He's like, the west side. <laughs> so yeah, the west side of Pretoria, apparently. Yeah, and uh, you know, 1979 in the thick of apartheid. But uh, yeah, I suppose as a kid growing up there and living amongst the same kind of people with you in the same financial situations, you don't really get that anything is wrong. You know, we're mm. just all trying to survive. We're all just on the same hierarchy, so to speak. So in my own opinion, I had a I had a pretty decent upbringing. I mm. was a kid, you know, there was lots of music all over the place, especially mm. The townships that I grew up in, jazz was very, very popular. So I couldn't quite escape it. It was this music that old people liked. <laughs> and what kind of what kind of jazz was that? Do you recall more specifically what influences were there? Yes, um, people like Miles Davis, uh, Coltrane, uh, Cannonball Adderley, Horace Silver, the Jazz Messengers of Ad Blakey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, what was really happening in the United States, basically, that was what was popular back at home. And we had our own musicians, too, emulating them, playing, mm. that, composing music in that style. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And while all the old people listening to jazz, what were, what were you young kids listening to? We were listening to R&B and soul. Yeah, <laughs> cool. You know, most of our music was banned from the radio. So the only thing you really heard on the radio was American R&B and soul music. Yeah, okay. So the music from your own culture was specifically banned or? It's on the radio. And if it was traditional music, most of it was not really recorded. Mm. So I have this, this tiny memory of um, Sunday afternoons of gathering around a square or whatever or somebody's street. And there was a bunch of... Uh, the guys who worked in the mines, they would, um, they lived in these hostels, you know, mm-hmm. and they would, some Sundays they would gather and put on their traditional gear and have like these dance competitions. And that's the one memory I have of experiencing our own traditional music life. Mm-hmm. We didn't have theaters to go and watch this kind of thing. So it just happened on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, but that's such a long time ago. I can't even recall. I mean, if I think of the place where that happened, then I must have been between 
two and six years old or something like that. Yeah, so very young. So when did you when did you leave South Africa then? How old were you? I left South Africa when I was twenty three. Okay, so a fair bit later. Did you feel like given that a lot of your own kind of culture's music was banned, did you feel did you feel that loss of culture yourself or that loss of connection? Or was it something that you really were aware of or were you just kind of living through the situation as it was then? Oh, I, I only started really feeling it when I was much older. And mm. I mean, we also lost our languages in a way, mm. not in a way, really are losing our languages. Um, I felt that much when I was much older and starting to write my own music and wanting to write lyrics in my own mother tongue and realizing that apartheid was um, a really smart, how do I say this? Um, mm. a, a smart machine, so to speak. Mm. They, they were really able to really dismantle everything that was ours, our language, our culture, everything. Mm. Like when I started writing my own music and wanting to use my tongue, I realized that there were certain words that I knew in English, but I don't know in my own mother tongue. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And you realize that because they mixed us all up. Uh, for example, my people, my mother tongue is Sipedi. But then you are dropped in a township with other people who speak Zulu or Kosa or whatever, all these other different languages. And then your own mother tongue becomes diluted, so to speak. Mm. You know, it's this um, new, not a new language, but it really becomes diluted. Yeah. In, in the certain words that you just don't know anymore yeah um, are people then sort of trying to use like a composite of those other different languages together in the same township or how yeah we have we have what you call tzotzital like the tzotzi is like the yeah for lack of a better word the, the thugs <laughs> um, and they used a lot of Afrikaans actually mm. they incorporated a lot of Afrikaans in their in their speech so, you know, you have some words that when you get older, you realize, wait a minute, this word is actually in Afrikaans, but what is the actual word in my mother tongue? And you don't know. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. That's the one thing that I, that I can say that I was, uh, that was uh, stripped away from us. But as a kid growing up there, you don't feel that. You mm -hmm. don't feel that something has been taken away from you. You only realize it when you're older and people like Miriam Makeva return home. And you realize that you actually don't know any of Miriam Makeba's music besides Pata Pata. You know, only then you realize that, oh yeah, snap, they couldn't play her on the radio because she was banned. Can you share a little bit about who she is actually for the, for the people listening? Um, wow. Miriam Makeba is Mama Africa. <laughs> she is a South African, or she was, or is, yes, he's late now of course she's a south african singer and um uh probably the most famous south african singer we've ever had because uh she got her fame outside of south africa she was um in a play called king kong and they went to travel the united kingdom and the states and then when she tried to get back home she couldn't all of a sudden she couldn't get back home because 
I think the main reason was because she was outspoken. She spoke about what was happening at home. Spoke about apartheid. Mm. And didn't like that one bit, of course. Hmm. So she was banned from returning to her own home country. And um, made a ton of music. Um, but very consciously making sure that she played our South African music out there in the world. And she was termed uh, Mama Africa. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, so you were you were growing up in the township, and you're growing up listening to soul music and and R and B and stuff. And when did you start getting into really singing yourself, really playing music? Was there kind of a moment where you felt like, rather than just being something you were immersed in, that it was something that you did specifically? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I remember that moment specifically. I was twelve years old in boarding school. I mean, I had been, my mother says I've been singing since I came out of the womb, which I can believe. (laughs) I bet. But uh, I remember being 12 years old at boarding school and the last Friday of each month, there was like a, we made our own like a entertainment night and people would form groups and they would dance and somebody would lip sync to a tune or or people would uh, put a sketch together and uh, a little play. And my identity was always, ever since kindergarten, actually, my identity was always the singer. You know that, you know, Tutu? Oh yeah, the singer. <laughs> so, and of course, uh, I, I was singing in school choirs and everything. And so I remember that one time we had this one night of like entertainment and uh, I lip synced to, to Natalie Cole, um and that song i remember the song was uh someone's rocking my dream boat <laughs> yeah <laughs> i had no idea what i was saying instead <laughs> uh, of lips i was singing much louder than the tape behind me you know so and there was a whole bunch of kids in the front telling the guy who was uh mixing the music in the back telling him to put the record lower so that they could hear me sing. And that moment that, wow, these people don't want to hear me lip sync. They want to hear me sing. That really, that was a really pivotal moment for me that I really thought that people want to hear me sing, you know, (laughs) and I was only, yeah, I was 11, 12. And that did something within me that really stuck and then uh, really, that was my favorite school ever. Uh, I was there for only two years. And then my mother was working for IBM and they moved, uh, IBM was in Pretoria and they moved to Johannesburg and she didn't want to do the commute anymore. And she took me out of boarding school and put me in another school, so-called white school in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And I think for four years, like that school completely stripped away oh, my as a singer. Wow. And for four years of high school, I didn't sing. Mm. And I'm 41 right now. And I can tell you that those four years were probably the worst four years of my entire life mm. still. Uh, what was it about that environment that meant that you weren't singing anymore? How did you it know, take away from you? Yeah, it was hard for a, for a 12-year-old kid who had straight A's in a school where everybody looked like her to be put in a completely different environment in a school where only four people looked like her and the rest were white who were not shy 
to express that we were not wanted there. So you went to school and you had teachers who really did not care for you, who really didn't like you simply because you were black. And just in the way we were spoken to and, and the tone that we got from the teachers, you know, it was always you black girls at the corner do this. But, you know, the other white kids would make noise just as much as we did, but it was always, it was, the tone was always different. They were, they were just girls, but with us, it was always you black girls. And, you know, you gotta, yeah, it it was miserable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds, it sounds fucking miserable. And And so, oh, sorry. In an environment like that, I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm my my voice so I just I just didn't do it yeah at that time I guess even if you didn't feel comfortable to express at the school you know within that environment or with maybe within yourself like what what was the music that you were listening to then was it the same were you to I guess as at that kind of age you're starting to develop your own musical interests and tastes and the direction that you're kind of looking in for yourself so what were you listening to around this point? The Natalie Cole was my favorite since I was much younger than 12. Um, you know, she was a pop singer at the time. But then this one track that I lip synced to someone rocking my dream boat was the arrangement. I mean, it's an old tune, mm. but the way she arranged it, that was my first experience of jazz, really. Mm. No, not like, let me say my first conscious experience of jazz, because I have, I had heard jazz growing up, mm. but like I said, growing up, I referred to it as that old music that my mom and my uncles like to listen to every Sunday. Mm. But when Nat Cole came out with that one track and the next album, she completely went into jazz with the album Unforgettable. Yeah. Uh, and I rem- and the video was with her late father, Nat King Cole. Mm-hmm. I, completely immersed myself in that album. I loved that album so much. I didn't even know that that entire album has mm. standards. I just mm. thought, and the arrangements were fantastic. I just thought this was the coolest thing I've ever heard. And I loved it so much that I, I don't know if I still know it now, but I knew that album inside out, all the words, all the arrangements, everything, and all the solos. I didn't even realize that these were like solos. You know, I just, I just sang along. Yeah, so, uh, she was my she was really my teacher. I listened to to Natalie Cole um, even more when she started going into the jazz world, and um, it was only when I after I finished high school and I went to study music for one year in an academy in Johannesburg. I remember going up the stairs of that building and hearing one of the tracks from that from that album. I don't remember which track it was, but I remember rushing up the stairs and you know going up to see what was going on and I opened the door and there was a band rehearsing and without skipping a beat I just jumped in and started singing with this (laughs) so good yeah so you know they were playing one of one of the standards from that album I don't remember which song it was but you know I just I just jumped in and I started to sing along and I've been stuck ever since (laughs) <laughs> that's great um so you were you weren't singing when you're in in high school but then when you finished you went to study 
music at this school, music school for a year. What, uh, what had kept you kind of in music and did you go specifically to study voice or what, what was it that you were studying when you went there? I didn't sing in school for four years, but I sang for myself. Yeah, I cool. Listened to and I sang for myself and I think the music really, um, it really got me through those four years. And there was a school in Johannesburg, the National School of the Arts, that I wanted to go to so badly because I knew that there I could get my identity back as a singer because mm. the name says the National School of the Arts. But at the time, my mother just didn't quite get it. She didn't quite get that. At that school, you can have mathematics, geography, biology, science, everything. And on the other hand, you also get a music education. Mm. Didn't quite get that. She felt like you need to go first to a proper high school. And then, so, you know, we had this, I mean, I was begging every day, begging for that first year of uh, four ways high school. What was the name of the high school I went to? That first whole year, I was begging my mother, please, can we at least just check it out? Let's go and let's check it out. Let's get a meeting. Nothing. She didn't, she wouldn't budge. So we just had the agreement that, okay, I'm going to finish proper high school for these four years. And then I can go and do whatever it is that I wanted mm, to do. Okay. Yeah. So the idea that after these four years, I can go study music was really the one thing that kept me that okay, let's do this four years, get this over and done with and get out of here. <laughs> it didn't help my grades because I just studied just enough to get through to the next grade, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would be super not motivating being in that environment, of course. Enough to pass and get to the next grade so that I can get out of high school and <laughs> <laughs> kept me going that that uh, me and my mom that we had this agreement that I'm gonna finish proper high school and then I can go do music. So the first academy of music that I heard about, I was like, I'm going there, and it was like it was a big sign. Like when I walked up those stairs and I heard them play, rehearsed this one track that I knew, I was like, this is it, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you were there studying, you were were you actually already looking towards jazz or were you studying anything in particular or was it more like a general kind of music education? It was a general music education. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that I was very much in love with singing and I knew that I was in love with singing this style of music. And it was there at the academy where I started to go back and to go back to listen to the people that Natalie could have listened to, you know, that's mm -hmm. when I realized that all this music that I've been listening was jazz standards and um, then I was reintroduced to people like Ella and Sarah because I had heard them at home, mm. but didn't really pay attention, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I was very fortunate to meet really good teachers. The teacher at the academy was a graduate from the University of Cape Town Music College. And he started to reintroduce me to all this music. And a lot of the things that he played was like, I know this. Every time I heard something, I was like, I know this. I've heard this all my life. I know this. But I didn't know their names. I didn't know it was Ella Fitzgerald, that it was Sarah Vaughan, that it was Carmen McRae and Betty Carter and all these amazing people. And yeah, I immersed myself into the music and started checking it out. And, um, you know, it was that one year at the Academy that really... It put my focus on becoming a jazz singer. And also because of my teacher, 
And at the time, I didn't even realize that you can go to university to study music. You know, I had never known anybody who had gone to university to study music. So this guy was like, listen, just go and audition and see what happens. And that's what happened. Yeah. Cool. So you went then to university and studied music there? Yeah. I went to the University of Cape Town to audition. Well, actually, it's kind of like a funny story. There was, I remember that one year at the academy in Johannesburg, there was lots of protests for something or an, I don't know, another in the city. And it was not very safe to go in the city every day. So we missed a lot of school. And our teacher, Jeff, he had a, some elderly students who were preparing themselves to go do auditions at UCT Music College. And I was just in my first year. These guys were like in their fourth year of the academy. But we started a band together. So I was singing with them in band. Cool. So they were going to class every day, preparing themselves, you know, preparing their theory exams because they had to go and do a theory and exam and a listening exam and a reading exam and everything. They were getting prepared for the audition and I wasn't. And our teacher just said to me, listen, just go with them to Cape Town and just play with them as a band. Mm. And he, re- he even came to my house. I remember he came to my house to convince my mother to let me go with these guys. <laughs> Jesus, well, I was maybe 18, 17. Mm. These guys were like 21, 22, whatnot. But they were my friends. They were my brothers. You know, they took care of me. And he yeah. was like, just go with them. And um, yeah, you, you don't have to audition. Just go there and sing with them as a band. And we went and I sang with them. And at the end, Mike Campbell, who was the head of the jazz department, he was like, uh, yeah, so you're in. And I was like, uh, yeah, but I didn't even, I'm not here to really audition. I'm just here to sing with the band. He was like, listen, you should come to the school. Here, take these applications forms, go back home, get your mother to sign them, send them back. You're in. I was like, dude, my mother can't afford to bring me to the school. Oh, she can't afford it? Okay, don't worry about that. Just take these forms. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to Mike, uh, Professor Mike Campbell. He basically, yeah, he just shoved those applications in my hands and told me to get my mother to sign them and uh, we would figure it out. Mm. And he get the school to pay for my first year at the university. So, awesome. So cool. Yeah. And so what was your experience like studying at university? Were you then specifically in a jazz program or...? Yeah, you had three programs. You had the classical program and you had the jazz program and you had the African music program. So I did kind of like half African music program and the jazz program. It was fantastic. It was really where I needed to be, you know. And it was my, because my high school experience was horrible with uh, relations between black and white people. I didn't make any white friends at that school. Uh, And then I went to university and there was a sea of white kids, but somehow we were connected. We were connected Mm -hmm. because they're for the music, you know, for the first time in my life, I could actually, I didn't feel black. I don't know if you can understand what I'm trying to say, but, you know, I was in a class with maybe two black kids and the rest were whites, but Mm -hmm. we didn't feel that heavy weight of like, Mm, okay 
it was for the first time in my life in South Africa that I really felt like I'm a musician first here. Mm. Before all my blackness, I am just, I'm just a kid who wants to study music. And all these kids here, we all just want to study music. Um, so it was like a, yeah, that college was like a really little safe haven. Mm. The rest. Cape Town is extremely racist, you know? Yeah. Uh, but in those halls at the music college, it was, yeah, it was like a, our own little utopia. Mm. You know? And we played together, we ate together, we lived together. It was, it was really great. Do you think that had anything to do with the fact that maybe a lot of the music you were studying from also came from like black culture? Do you think that then? I didn't process it then, Mm. but now I I think so. I think because we watched a lot of DVDs, (laughs) Um, you know, we watched a lot of of the history of this music Mm. and, you know, and it was created by black people. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of these white kids had a lot of respect for the people that created this music that they love so much. Mm. So they were able to see us, the black students, they were able to see that we are capable. That yeah. our, and so to speak, created this amazing music that they love. So we must be capable. Yes. So I definitely think that all of us there learning the history and listening to this music together had a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it brings up that kind of idea of representation and how important it can be in uh, changing uh, people's perspectives. Cool. So you had a a wonderful time in the program. And is it then, if you moved when you were, you said about 23, does that mean that when you finished the jazz program, you you left South Africa or? When I finished... The option was always to move to Johannesburg because that's where the money was. My seniors, people who were fantastic musicians who are now famous in South Africa, when they finished at the UCT Music School, they all moved to Johannesburg because that's where the money was. But then they had to kind of slightly leave jazz behind in those days. I mean, I'm talking about 1998, 99. Hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, they had to kind of leave jazz behind because uh, the corporate world, the the music corporate world in South Africa is where a lot of musicians made their made their money from. When I say the corporate world, I mean companies having end of year parties and they want a band. You know, mm-hmm. they don't want jazz. They wanna they wanna party. They wanna dance. Yeah. So I saw incredible jazz musicians moving to Johannesburg and completely leaving jazz behind and making music to make people dance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always had this dream that I want to be a jazz singer. I don't know where that came from, but I was very adamant that I want to be a jazz singer. I don't want to move to Johannesburg and end up becoming a corporate soul slash R&B wannabe hmm. singer. This is the music that I, that truly resonates with my soul. And this is what I want to do. Hmm. So yeah, I was in a bit of a conundrum, if I may say so. Yeah. I was done at school and I was like, yeah, what am I going to do now? I knew that there was still a lot of room to grow. And uh, I guess I was at the right place at the right time because um, 
one of my teachers was a, uh, a jazz musician, a piano player from Holland. His name is Jack van Paul. And he was living in Cape Town and teaching at the university. And he would invite me to come to Holland and to Belgium to play some gigs with him and musicians over here. And he would buy my ticket and everything. And started traveling with Jack and he introduced me to a whole bunch of really, really amazing musicians here. Mm. And I started playing with them when I was here. And, and then I would go back home and play with my band back at home. Oh, and that's I when I, there is an enormous room to grow. And I knew that if I wanted to grow as a jazz musician, that Johannesburg was not the place for me to go. So, you know, I would have these conversations with Jack and um, he basically created a scholarship for me. He got some money together and he said, okay, listen, we're going to take you to Holland for one year. And during that one year, you figure yourself out. (laughs) (laughs) He created a scholarship for me and I went to the Hague, to the Mm. conservatory for a year and a half. And uh, fell in love with a boy and moved to Belgium. Ah, you fell in love with a with a jazz boy, or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I met a <laughs> piano player from Belgium, and uh, when I when I ran out of money in the Hague, he was like, "Listen, why don't you just come to Belgium and see what happens?" And uh, then I came to Belgium to see what happens, and I've been stuck here since. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's now been 17 years. Yeah, wow. And so what has that experience been like living in Belgium, living in this culture? How does it compare and and what has your experience of the music scene here been like? Well, I have suddenly grown as a musician, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been certain opportunities that I've had that I do not know. I mean, I will never know if I would have had the same kind of opportunities had I stayed at home. Mm. Yeah, we'll never know. I mean, <laughs> um, it's life. Life. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been, you know, of course, it was extremely hard in the beginning having to get used to the culture shock because in South Africa, we're very open. We're very open people. We greet each other on the streets. We have small chit chats at the supermarket with strangers you can't really do that here no especially in antwerp where you know some belgians tell me that some parts of belgium you can like in yeah. are more open and they say hello and but antwerp no <laughs> so you know there was that and also having grown up in apartheid south africa you as a black person you think that everyone is racist (laughs) you know but um i had to learn very quickly that you know it's just it's just different culture shocks it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody that i say hi to and doesn't say hi back was racist that people are just themselves and people are just shy and people just don't feel comfortable talking to a stranger Mm. and that's okay. That not ne- that's not necessarily racist. So, you know, that's one thing that I had to unlearn. Yeah, that's complicated. Trying to figure out whether or not, yeah, in a culture shock like that, I can only imagine that you'd be wondering sometimes if someone's interaction with you is because of your race or just because of them and their cultural experience. Yeah, so I had to, I had to get around that quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, 
And I had to remember not to lose myself because I felt mm. myself accepting that it is what it is. You don't say hi to everybody here. You don't have to chat with everybody. And then going home and doing that, you know, and not saying hello to people and not having to, and starting to feel a bit awkward when people talk to me that I didn't know. And I had to stop myself from that. Like, hey, 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 you are home now. This is different. Yeah. You know? but, that, but it's fine now. It's fine. I mean, I love going home and I look forward to going back to South Africa where I know that, you know, during Christmas time, you hug strangers, you know, just because, <laughs> because everybody's in a good mood and the sun is shining. <laughs> yeah, the sun is shining at Christmas time. I'm with you. I know about that. <laughs> So yeah, that was on the one hand, but the music has been really great. Um, and the people in the music scene have, of course, been extremely open and welcoming. And I think also that has to do with the, with the music that we all love. Um, so I guess I've had, in a way, an easier time when it comes to race issues in Belgium. Mm, interesting. Because, you know, I know my life would be completely different if I had to go find a job at the Deleuze or at the Panos or, you know, to work as a waitress in whatever restaurant. Mm. Um, it would be completely different. Mm. And I'm, I am certain that I would come across a lot more racial tensions if I can put it like that mm-hmm. but I am a singer I come to this um, little bubble actually mm. this little bubble people adore me for my voice for those three hours that I'm with them and they are simple and they are nice and we go our separate ways and I don't have to deal with them in, mm. in my regular life you know so in a way, I guess my being a singer has sheltered me from, mm. from the race issues that are going on in Belgium. Not that I don't see them, not that they don't happen to me now and again. Mm. But I guess I can count racial encounters that I've had in the 17 years in Belgium. I can count them all in one hand. Wow. You know. Also, I consciously stay away from politics, if I can be honest. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can speak a fair, a fair amount of Dutch, but not well enough to go into a debate with somebody about politics, you mm. know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I don't, I don't get involved solely because I don't know the language well enough to do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you find yourself kind of watching what's happening politically in South Africa, maybe more than here or reflecting on that in a different way or? just saying that to my daughter she's uh 12 years old now and she follows uh the nws the 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 news um uh what does it stand for yeah nws it's like a news channel a belgian news channel and she follows it on instagram you know oh yeah yeah i don't follow it either (laughs) and i I said to her you know what that's a good idea i should do that too yeah i can i can at least have some kind of um awareness of what's going on where I live Mm. Uh, I certainly I mean I read newspapers from home every day I still know more of what's happening in South Africa than I do of what's happening here in Belgium Um, yeah that's a funny thing when you move abroad I think especially if you haven't 
immerse yourself totally in the language. I find the same for myself. Like I'm quite politically aware of what's happening in Australia still. And I keep a fairly watchful eye on that. But as for Belgian politics, I feel kind of almost uncomfortable with how unaware I am of what's going on. You know, I feel I really should put more effort into being informed, but it's, it's difficult when you don't have that sort of same background as well. Cause I feel like you don't know who they are. You don't know their, their political history. You don't- yeah. The history is such a big kind of part of that. You sort of, if the country that you grew up in, you sort of uh, always immersed in the, the function of that politics, whether you're aware of it or not sort of easier to understand it well uh, thing that you and i can do maybe is to follow this nws thing on Instagram. yes indeed it's a per- it's a perfect start yeah i try to kind of get bits of information you know from my housemates and and people that i but then it, it, you know it's always something that's filtered through it's it's filtered through the media and then filtered through someone else's perception and own experience so you feel a little bit mm, i always feel a bit uncomfortable to kind of judge through so many it's like not firsthand not secondhand it's like fourthhand information or opinion so i always feel like i can't it's uh vrt you know the vrt the vrt nws on perfect and so musically it's been quite a positive experience here then it sounds like what do you feel are the sort of defining features of the jazz scene here in Belgium maybe versus in other places that you've experienced? Do you have other points of comparison? I guess maybe you have a little bit of South Africa, but do you maybe even compared to Holland, is there a difference? What, what do you notice? Well, you know, the biggest difference that always springs to mind is the fact that in Belgium and Holland, I don't know about Germany because Germany is a very uh, tricky, tight scene to get your foot into mm. unless you're a German agent and then they get you gigs over there. But the one thing that I, that I know for sure about Holland and Belgium is that every tiny little village has a cultural center. They have an actual building that is sponsored by the government. So the building does not depend on how many tickets are sold each night that doesn't matter. You know, that's why the price can be as low as five euros for a gig or whatever. You know, they get a subsidy to keep the buildings upkeep and to pay the people that work there. And artists can come in there and play their music, put on their, their play. You know, they, artists in Holland and Belgium, they have homes, they have structural spaces and venues where they can put their art out there. Mm. That is the biggest difference with Europe. And let me not say Europe, let me because I only know of Belgium and Holland. Mm-hmm. Between that and South Africa, because South Africa is like the US, basically. If you want to have a show in a theater like the Beaux-Arts in Johannesburg, mm. you hire the Beaux-Arts. You have to pay the people that are going to stand at the door selling the tickets. You have to pay the advertising yourself. You have to invest ten thousand money stand on that stage. So that is the biggest plus of living here. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. 
that the system kind of supports people to share their art, especially if it's something that's not at the front of popular consciousness or whatever. You talk, you said that when you were doing the jazz program, you also studied some African uh, music styles as well. What, what did that part of the course involve and what drew you to that given that you were raised, you know, without really that cultural background? The groove. <laughs> the groove is really the one thing that drew me to it. Yeah, I studied to play uh, the mbira, you know, the little thumb piano kind of thing. Ah, okay, yes. I can't play it anymore. I mean, I can, I can fool around with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the African Music Department at the UCT had a, a, an incredible teacher who knew so much about the music and about... But then I was lazy. I was this lazy student. I didn't want to study... <laughs> The history I just wanted to learn how to play that instrument and that instrument and that was it <laughs> so even the dance that's what brought mm. me in there but I didn't follow it completely as a course like I say I was following the jazz course yeah okay a couple of subjects in the African music department to learn how to play them beater and to just sit in a circle and bang on a djembe and have somebody dance between, you know, in the middle of the circle. Um, For me, it was just the groove and the fun of it all. Yes. Yeah. It certainly has a, certainly has a spirit and energy to it. Definitely. I can see how that would draw people. I was wondering in part, you said that you've been writing music in your, in your mother tongue. And so I was wondering if your experience in that course has somehow kind of fed into your music that you've written or how, did that kind of influence come later? No, not really. Um, because I'm not, especially when it comes to writing lyrics, the only way that I can write a lyric is having have gone through that particular subject that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not talented enough to just make up something in thin air like so many other people who are much more talented than me can can do uh so that's why it takes me forever to i don't know more talented just differently talented <laughs> yeah it's a weird it's an interesting skill that to be able to kind of write about something that's not of your own experience i don't know who are extremely gifted in that who can just do it on a whim in five minutes but i really have to live my life mm and have something happen in my life that I want to talk about. Mm. And that has been the only way for me to write, to write a lyric. And I've discovered that for me to truly, um, English is not my first language. That's one thing. And my, my English has gotten worse. Ah, these years that I've been living in Belgium. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Yes. And, for me, writing music in my own tongue has been a way for me to really stay connected to my roots mm. because I realized that there's so many words that I forget, you know, I forget how to phrase certain things and I, I have to call my mother and ask her and she laughs at me and she's like, you better come back home. You've been there too long. <laughs> But I also realized that since English is not my first language, if I really want to pour my heart out about a particular topic, mm. I go to my mother tongue because that's where I can really express myself better, mm. you know? Yeah, that's the reason why I, I do that. Cool. 
does it affect the do you find that you also kind of bring in influences from music that's specific to your life in Africa or is it really just that you have you know your own mother tongue and then the the music itself is really just drawing from that jazz tradition specifically yeah the music usually because I write I collaborate a lot with other people uh, I collaborate a lot with my husband who is my piano player we have our studio downstairs in our house and um when I'm upstairs doing whatever with the kids, I can always hear what he's playing downstairs. And if he's playing something that I really like, I will go down there and say, that, can you record that? I like what you did there, there, there. And he doesn't specifically write for me. He writes what he wants to write. And if it resonates with me and I like it, then I take it and I put a lyric on top of it and it becomes something else you know uh, we we don't specifically think okay now we are going to write an african song or now we are going to write a jazz piece or no, we don't mm. think like we try not to discriminate what comes to us yeah you know we just take comes, and then i put my words in my own tongue in it and mm. people because i sing in a language they don't understand an african language they don't understand they want to box it and call it African music, but if you put an English lyric to it, it just becomes an piece. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you find then a lot of people that kind of come to you, yeah, really kind of trying to put your music in that box? Um, you know, it doesn't really happen with the audience. It happens with the critics. Yeah. People that want to write about it because they're smart and they know it all. And for whatever mm. reason it happens with those people and those people are the least important actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know i want to ask them to to create something themselves instead of i mean would they have a job if there were no creators you know if there mm. were no music at all no movie makers no designers would they have a job because their job is just to look at something that somebody else did and criticize it. And there yeah. has been this culture in the jazz scene here in Belgium where people don't even criticize what's there. They want to try and criticize what's not there. You know what I mean? Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. so, so like I say, those, those are the ones that want to box you in everything. Mm -hmm. But those are the, the least important um, my audience matters, you know, the fact that I'm able to fill a hall, that's what matters. The fact that people come and they pay the money that is being asked to pay and they switch their cell phones off and they come and they listen. Mm. Um, it don't matter to them. It don't matter which language I'm singing in. It don't matter what I call it. They come to have a good time and they always have a good time. So, yeah, I yeah, it matters how it speaks to the audience, I guess, first and foremost. So what are you kind of working on at the moment? What are you working towards? And do you feel like you're changing as an artist? How do, how do you feel you've kind of grown? Um, changing, I wouldn't say changing. I would for sure say growing. Mm. I certainly do feel that uh, I grow as, as an instrument, you know. My, my voice is my instrument. 
And I certainly feel that um, the more I do it, the more I'm still finding out that, oh, if I breathe from here, I could do this better. And oh, if I let go of my belly when I want to hit this note, I can do this better. So, you know, the more I do it, the, the better it gets, I, I hope. Yeah, so there certainly has been some some growth for sure. And what I'm working on right now, um, I have written music to uh, the poetry of Lebohang Mashile. Lebohang is a poet from South Africa. She's an activist. She's an actor as well and a presenter. And um, she released a book years ago with a whole bunch of beautiful poems. And her book was translated in a gazillion languages. Um, it was even used as a study material in Germany for some school kids in Germany. What's the name of the book? Do you remember? Oh, my God. I have it here, but I have the German version of the book. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you her name and you can check out. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to look that one up and I can put a link somewhere for people to check it out. This book was published some years ago. She gave me a copy of this uh, school book that's been translated in, in German and in English, of course. I mean, the book has, you get the English poem and then the next page is the German poem. Mm. What language was it written in uh, initially? It was written in English. Okay. Yeah, and um, she's my age, so I felt like I wanted to celebrate my peer, you know? So this was a perfect person. She's very revered in, in South Africa. She's, she's fantastic. You should check her out. Definitely. So yeah, Awat and I, uh, we wrote about eight or nine new songs and we used her poetry as lyrics. And uh, we were very, very fortunate to have uh, four gigs in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago when Switzerland opened their borders, I think, on the 8th of June. Ah, cool. Yeah, and we were able to drive there, which was much safer to do. <laughs> Not for us. Yes. Safer for us. <laughs> Uh, we drove to Switzerland to play four nights in a row at this club called the Bird's Eye Jazz Club. And um, we were playing the music before the corona hit us. We were playing the music just in duo. We hadn't played it with a band yet. So we got this opportunity to play with the band four nights in a row. And this music just, it really blew me away. I'm so proud of this music right now. And I really can't wait to go into the studio and record it. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait to hear it. Yeah, I can't wait for people to hear it too. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> so what I want to do with this project is actually get an orchestra to get somebody to write string arrangements, like mm. an orchestration of the music and play it. Yeah, and, and play it with as many different orchestras as possible, as Corona allows, I suppose. Yes, that's definitely put a hold on a lot of artistic, uh, creative projects. It's a frustrating shame. That's a dream for like in three years, because in the next two years, I don't think that things are going to be so open that we can be on stage with 40 people, you know? Mm. Yeah, or oh, three years. I hope it's not three whole years. Oh, yeah, yay. <laughs> But that sounds like a really, uh, yeah, I'm really curious to hear the products of this project. 
that's uh, super cool. Yeah. Um, the other thing I always wanted to do in honor of my grandfather, I want to put a book together because I have all these kids in South Africa who email me at least once a week looking for a chart of a particular song that I recorded eight years ago or something. Then I have to go to the computer to look for a chart for them. And I'm like, what are they teaching you in school? You should be transcribing it yourselves. <laughs> they all come to me because they know that I'm nice. I just give them the charts and they don't have to pay for it. So I'm, I'm putting all these charts together and I want to make a book and I'm going to get somebody in South Africa to pay for the making of the book yes. and sell it at the schools or like put it in music libraries or whatever. How cool. You said in honor of your grandfather, is that right? Yeah. Well, he's still alive. Thank God. <laughs> uh, my grandfather was the first musician that I ever looked up to. He uh-huh. piano player. Uh, not professionally, he played piano just at home. And um, I admired him so much. I thought he was a magician. I have this memory of me being really, really small, looking at him, look at a score. And I used to call, because he used to play golf. I used to call music notes, little golf sticks on Uh paper. And uh, I would just watch him all day play. At least it felt like all day. And I couldn't understand how he could look at this gibberish, small, black, connected um, golf sticks and never look down at his fingers and produce the most beautiful music I've ever heard. Wow. So, yeah, that was uh, one of my first, he was my first musician. He was my first accompanist, actually. He would get all his grandchildren to sing and he would tell everybody, everybody, shush, shush, listen, <laughs> listen to four twice and do it like she does it. <laughs> I'm. How cool. Yeah. That's cool. So, does, is he still able to play? I, I don't know how. No, he's not. He's in a home now. He's got dementia. Mm. He's got. 98 this year so he's basically just he's had enough he wants to die he's had enough <laughs> he's had enough yep <laughs> yeah god i can understand that i had a conversation earlier in the year with an older person that was more or less saying the same thing they were like i'm good if i live much longer than this that's going to be pretty ridiculous i think i'm okay <laughs> it sounds like a great inspiration to have though um I have a bit of a weird question and I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly how to articulate it. So if I absolutely fail and this is just like a miss, I'll just get rid of it. But um, as someone who plays jazz in, I guess, like a white dominated uh, European scene, something that I notice perhaps being a little bit more aware of well first of all I mean English is my native language but perhaps I'm a little bit more well kind of versed in the history of the music and what the kind of experience of black Americans was as jazz was evolving and sometimes I find that people here will maybe play songs or sing lyrics or kind of treat the music in a way that perhaps isn't either respecting kind of the history of, of the music or the, the people that wrote it. So maybe a particularly maybe worrisome example would be someone singing like black and blue 
having read the lyrics but not really ever actually understanding them because it's not in their native tongue necessarily but also just maybe not consciously kind of reviewing what it is that they're absorbing and I wonder as someone who is a black person in this scene but is not black American do you notice these kinds of things yeah that was the biggest thing I noticed when I was teaching I taught at the jazz studio here in Antwerp, like a private music school for three years. And I taught for, no, that was two years. And I taught for three years at the Antwerp Conservatory. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I realized that these kids, they just took these songs and they had absolutely no idea of what they were singing about. Mm. And that was one of the most important things as a singer you are singing in a language that people understand. You are not just singing a pretty tune. You got to interpret what you're singing about. Mm. And if you understand what you're singing about, then don't sing it. Mm. That was, that's me, the teacher coming out right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. But that's, that's an important point. And I guess then if you notice this or we're noticing this, what do you think maybe can be done or should be done differently how do you feel like people are receptive to these kinds of conversations as well student teacher situation yes it's much easier to talk about it Um, that was one of the things that i used as a teacher was speak the words first write them down and that's how you memorize the lyrics anyway speak it to yourself and try to speak every line as if you were hearing it for the first time and write it down and really go home and think about it and think what does it mean to you. For example, a tune like um, Summertime, which everybody loves. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> I always think about this song. Like Summertime. And they sing it with the biggest smile when the living was easy. And I was like... Think about this. Think yeah. about what are you talking about? You're talking about picking cotton. <laughs> Fuck. And uh-huh. it was easy, really? No. So, and then I give them a recording of Diane Reeves, who sings Summertime. And you can hear there's this particular, yeah, I, I have to remember exactly which version she, she sings, where you can even hear her asking the question in her singing. When it goes, and the living was easy. She Mm. goes like this. um, And the living was easy. She really asks the question. Yeah. Yeah. Just choose the song and they want to sing it. And they had never thought about it. They had never thought. Another song like Love for Sale. Like, what are you, do you realize that this is somebody selling their love? Yeah. Talking about, do you have enough money to come upstairs? This is is a prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Another one that, that bothers me is the Sheikh of Araby. I mean, come on, <laughs> fuck! Like, it's just so creepy. It's such a creepy fucking song. I heard someone sing it the other day, and I was just like, no, please no. Yeah, like it's easier to talk about these things in a student teacher environment because. You can have the prettiest voice, but if you don't relate, at least for me, I mean, for me, the lyric is important. Mm. If you don't relate the lyric to your audience, 
then then you lose me you know that's why somebody like billy holiday was so strong she might not have had the prettiest voice on the planet but when she sang she pulled at your heartstrings you know mm. that's because she was telling the story she was interpreting the story and conveying her own life experiences in that song which is a very hard thing to do for a young white kid who grew up in this beautiful little bubble called Flandern and they want to jazz and they want to sing summertime mm. and I confront about it and they have to go home what slavery picking cotton what is she talking about yeah. you know um, yeah, absolutely so, yeah yeah when I teach it's one of my duties to make them realize what they're singing about and try mm. to take it into their lives and try to find something in their lives that connects to what they're singing because mm. if it's honest people are not gonna feel you yeah of course and then outside of a teacher-student relationship how receptive do you think people are to these discussions and I am now speaking specifically about yeah living here in Belgium and I guess maybe even Holland as well how that relates like do you think people are receptive to have those discussions have you tried to have those discussions with people people have not been receptive to talk about these things. I mean, I have, maybe now it has changed in the mood that we are in today. Maybe people are starting to open their eyes and, and starting to open their ears and listen. But before, before this whole mess that we're in right now, mm. I, have a, yeah, I don't know if I can call him a friend anymore because we had so many clashes about these things. Uh, talk about a white Belgian drummer who lived in New York for many years. Um, every time these kinds of topics would come up, his immediate response was always, oh, this doesn't exist in my world. This doesn't exist in my world. And I'd be like, dude, of course it doesn't exist in your world. You are a white man. Of course uh, racial discrimination does not exist in your world. You are a white man who claims who plays jazz music, who claims to love, who has countless uh, black girlfriends. But then when we have to talk about racial tensions, all of a sudden you don't want to talk about it because it doesn't exist in your world. So, mm. you know, there was a lot of that where people just did not want to talk about it because it just didn't affect them at all. Yeah. To take a man getting lynched in front of them to start listening. Yeah. So, and I hope that it's going to start those conversations. I ask because I guess that's partly been my experience here, trying to have those kinds of conversations with people is that they're, they're really not receptive to it. It makes them uncomfortable and they make the excuse that they see it as, an, as a problem, an American problem and a problem outside of their own experience. And, and I don't see how if you're playing that this music or even a fan of it or you know in the the circle of people that I'm involved in as well or dancing to it you know that like any of those things how you can say that it's separate somehow from your life and your experience right right yeah I remember having an um not nah I didn't argue with him because it was useless to argue but I remember playing for a week in a club years ago in Paris and an audience member shouted, summertime, summertime. And um, all four of us in the band, we know very well what that song is about. And my band mates 
they know that I don't sing summertime, especially not it's been shouted by somebody. <laughs> in the and I just could not understand or he didn't want to understand. But then, of course, you cannot have a conversation with drunk people in a club. You know, he just couldn't get why I didn't want to sing summertime. And um, I would love to have that conversation with him today, whoever he was, you know, mm. and where his mindset is now, whether he's ready to, to investigate the tune, just the song. I don't even want to know about his own life. But mm. no, it, was not, uh, it wasn't something that people want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, uh, I feel like we've talked about a lot. Um, I guess I'm just wondering maybe from where you are with your music today or kind of the, the music that you've been influenced by, who have been your maybe bigger inspirations or do you have any sort of maybe more obscure um, recommendations for people that you might like to introduce to people, things that they can go check out? Yeah, there's a lot, uh, a lot, maybe a few fascinating things from young people coming out of South Africa right now mm. that I definitely recommend. There's a young lady by the name of Tandi Nduli. Mm-hmm. Tandi, that's T-H-A-N-D-I. Nduli is N-T-U-L-I. She's an incredible piano player, a beautiful singer, and um, she's doing really, really wonderful wonderful music. Um, also another piano player from home. His name is Bokani. That's B-O-K-A-N-I. Bokani Dyer. Dyer is D-Y-E-R. Also fascinating composer. Uh, really, really great piano player. Hmm. I'm still obsessed with piano players now that I think about it because the <laughs> third one again a piano player his name is Africa Mkize Africa with a K and Mkize is M-K-H-I-Z-E yeah if you could just start with those three (laughs) but uh, it was like a new era of young guys who were coming behind me actually Mm. Um, like going to School to study music is now so much in fashion, which is a beautiful thing. <laughs> but it's with really incredibly talented people. I mean, I, I talk about them to anybody who's willing to listen because I feel that they, they deserve the world. They're making such beautiful music and they deserve to be heard and be seen. Um, the Johannesburg jazz scene. There's a lot of incredibly good really world-class things happening in Facebook right now. So that's exciting. Have you ever, I mean, I know obviously your relationship is, it affects this choice, but have you ever thought about going back? All the time. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. All the time. You know, there was a time when my husband was very ready. I mean, I think he still is. He loves South Africa so much. That if I said to him next week that, okay, listen, I'm done. I'm done. Let's go. He packs up and we go without a problem. In fact, there was a time when I felt like he was more ready to move back than I was. <laughs> yeah, because um, I would love 
to move back to South Africa. But there's just, like you say, it would be very, very, very complicated. I would miss the opportunities that I have in Belgium, honestly. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm able, my children are very small. Our daughter is 12 and our son is seven. So they are of uh, school going age. Mm. So I'm really in a luxury position to live in this country that I am able, and we're not even talking about the whole of Belgium. I'm talking about Flanders. And I mean, if you look at how small Flanders is, but I'm able to play for a season in Flanders and have my children go to school every day and and have work for an entire season. Mm. You know, I don't have to get out of Belgium to find work, you know? So for me, that's the biggest plus for, for as long as my children are of school going age, I don't want to mess up their lives. Um, Yeah. Okay. So living here offers stability in terms of work and being able to raise a family at the same time. And if I look at my peers in the U S they really have to get out of to work. I mean, okay, no, maybe they don't have to because the U S is pretty big, but you know, in terms of earning a decent living, they have to, because if you just live in New York and you're just playing in New York, I mean, the cab fare costs more than the gig. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, living, just, just playing in Flanders, I earn enough to have a decent living. I mean, well, my situation is, of course, different because I have a husband who works at the Kunstumaniora, which is a, an arts uh, high school, and he earns his salary from there. So we live off of his salary. And then on the, on the other hand, we have our little music record label, our, our company, where we use that for all the music things. But with my singing, I'm able to bring money into our music company and, mm. and live like that, you know? So yeah, if I have to think about schooling, if I have to think about uh, social security, I have to think about uh, medical aid and things like that. You know, things are much more organized in Belgium (laughs) and they are in South Africa. Life would become just way more expensive and also not having the security of being able to work and earn for me uh, to work as a singer Mm. and earn amounts of money to, uh, to have a decent living. And South Africa is so big. If, I, if we settle in Johannesburg and I have to go play a gig in Cape Town, I would need to organize babysitters and, and get a, you know, pay for a flight. I mean, yeah. to live in Flanders for a whole season and just drive to the gig and drive back home. So with all of that considered, mm. I'm going to stay put until my children are old enough to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, before we finish as well, you mentioned your little record uh, label company that you have with your husband. Do you want to maybe give a little shout out to that or talk a little bit about creating that? Yeah. Well, the first two albums I recorded with a label in Holland. I forget the name. So they paid for everything. And then, you know, CD sales in general 
have been dying out quicker than I don't know what in the last 10 years, right? So we would make the music, they would release it, and we would have to buy the CDs from them for us to be able to sell them at gigs. Uh, Yeah. That's how it works. So either you get yourself a really nice contract with a nice percentage or you don't. Um, So, you know, in the end, we realized that, you know, CD sales are very poor anyway. The most CDs we sell is after a gig. Me and my husband, we decided, listen, we might as well just do this ourselves. So that's how our company started. We just decided, okay, we're just going to make a company just for us to release our own music so that we own the master, that we own everything. And even if we don't make a cent, at least whatever cent comes in, that it's ours. Yeah. You know, even if we break, because I mean, that's what we had to do most of the time. Even if, even when you're with a label, you had to break even all the, the sales that you made you had to break even first before you could get your cut of the royalties. Hmm. And the CD sales were so bad in general, all these uh, CD towers in New York, it, it vanished. It's not there anymore. You know, all these CD shops, they just went, they were just gone because <laughs> nobody's going to the store to buy CDs anymore. So we decided that uh, we might as well just do it ourselves, break even, and if there is a profit, that the profit is all ours, that we don't have to share it with somebody else. So that's how, that's how our little company started. That um, makes sense. And then other musicians in our scene realized that they wanted to do it themselves too, but then they didn't have the know-how about how to go about it. And they would come to my husband for advice And some of them ended up saying, listen, you have the structure already. So would you guys mind releasing our music? And we were like, we don't have the capital. So since you're doing it yourself, do it yourself and we'll we'll release it for you. And you get the biggest cut because we only need the cut to press it, to Mm. do the copyright, you know, for all of that work. So a lot of people started coming to us. And before you know it, we build a catalog of like, I don't know, I think we must have like 15 or 16 albums now under our... Yeah, cool. Little, yeah, it doesn't make any money, but at least people get to have their music recorded. Yeah, no, it sounds like something that really works kind of in service of the, of the community. I think the way that these kinds of things work, artists are at such a disadvantage so often that having these sort of more localized and artist run structures, it's, it's a much better way of doing things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody feels like uh, that it's their own, you know, they don't feel like it's ours, you know, like when you do it with a big company like Sony, it's Sony's property. It's not yours. So in our way, everybody who released under soul factory, which is our, uh, the name of our record label, Mm -hmm. they know that it's theirs. Yeah. We are very transparent about the sales and everything. So, you know, they can trust us. <laughs> That's super cool. It's such a great, uh, great community service, essentially. All right. Well, do you have anything else you want to add? To, otherwise, maybe we, can, maybe we can leave it there. No, I don't have much to add. Cool. All right. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and hearing your perspective. I really thank you for sharing. You're very welcome. And thanks for inviting me to talk. 
Cool. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to know more about Tutu and her music, you can head to tutupuanemusic.com. I'll include a link to this website and some other content in the show notes. Thanks to the Shake 'em Up Jazz Band for allowing me to use their version of Vivian Gary's A Woman's Place is in the Groove for our podcast theme. If you enjoyed this episode and are interested in this project, it would help us a lot if you can like and share it. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram with at women.in.jazz, where I do a semi-regular Women of Jazz History feature in which I spotlight a great female jazz musician of the past. And just a reminder that you can support the podcast at Patreon with patreon.com forward slash women in jazz. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode.